I want to talk about truth this morning, the truth about truth. There's so much to say. Some of these subjects I've been picking lately, you could talk about for a couple weeks and begin to only scratch the surface of what the Bible says about it, what ought to be applied to uh, a subject. So this morning I just want to mention three or four things that are characteristic of truth as the Bible uses the word truth and as we ought to use it. I think that we are, as a, a couple of years ago, maybe 2018, maybe it was 2019, uh, the word of the year, according to Webster Dictionary, was post-truth. We're living in a post-truth era. By that they mean we've outgrown the idea that there's such a thing as truth, and that really doesn't matter anymore. It's I, I'm going to read into what they're saying. It's uh, what people think about things. You could see this coming. Judy could verify probably 40-some years ago I began talking about the fact that I only heard people talk about how they feel about something. Well, how do you feel about abortion? We say this all the time. You say this. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about Joe Biden? How do you feel about Donald Trump? I don't care about that. What do you think about abortion is better but we left that behind. Now, words change. Words change meaning and usage. Not by not. It's not some accident that it happens that way in culture. These things happen kind of organically, but they happen for a reason. We didn't start switching from saying "What do you think about something?" to "How do you feel about it?" for no good reason. We don't want to think about. We don't think about things. All the media images. You know, you see pictures. See a picture of a news story, that picture becomes the truth about it. You, they may find out later that that picture is not true. It was staged, or it only represents one small thing, or the people involved in that had a reason to be that. You, they may find a lot about the, the truth about that picture, but the picture is all that stays there in your mind. The picture is all that stays there. The picture, the famous picture of the Vietnam War, of that uh, South Vietnamese general executing that guy, boom, on the street. Have you ever seen that? You can look it up. It's a famous picture. Oh, this is the end. This is the most, this is, represents everything bad about Vietnam and the war. That man had been responsible for killing dozens and dozens of Vietnamese families. But they don't tell you, so pictures can create feelings, but they don't always tell you the truth about it. And so we ought to think. And then sometimes true thinking leads to proper feelings. But just to walk around feeling everything every day, you're easily manipulated by those who want to manipulate you, which is a whole lot of people today. Want to manipulate your thinking to change your feelings about stuff every day. And, and we ought to be better than that. But there is truth about truth. I haven't even got off the first slide, have I? This is not good. Let's, let's go to the scriptures. That, that's always something that we can get something from instead of my rantings. But let's, let's take a look in Acts 17. Now we're going to go backwards and forwards from this passage here in Acts 17. So it's kind of in the middle. It's a big chapter, a lot of stuff in it. And what we find here is, is Paul is on his third, what are called missionary journeys. The word missionary is not in the Bible, but he's taking these trips, been sent out by the church at Antioch with either uh, Barnabas or uh, Silas and so forth. He's being sent out, and he's going to different places where the gospel's not been preached, these different cities. One of his first stops in every of these places, if he can do that, uh, it seems like he stopped in places where he knew there was a Jewish synagogue. 
To have a synagogue at that time of Jews, you had to have ten men who were faithful to have a synagogue. And so these towns, when he found a town like that, he went there first. Didn't Jesus say the gospel would be first to the Jew and then to the Greek? He went there first. Talked to these people who should have known about the Messiah, who should have had some connection to the Messiah, and he talked to them about the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures in these synagogues. And one place he came, it says, uh, they came to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble, the King James says, or fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, don't make the mistake, like I heard people growing up, that these are Christians in, in Berea. He's not talking about Christians. He's talking about the Jews in the synagogue. And these Jews in this synagogue were more fair-minded than the Jews where he just left, which we'll come to in a moment, because they actually tried to listen to what Paul say said to ascertain whether it's the truth. Now, how did they do that? Well, they received it with readiness. They were eager to hear what Paul said about the Messiah and the Scriptures. And then, not being gullible or going on their feelings, they searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, Paul called that attitude of being willing to listen to something different and, and new, and then searching the scriptures, which were old, to see if it was true, he called that noble, or being fair-minded in this case, in their approach to the truth. And because of this, many of them believed, many did not, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women, as well as men. Now then you have another situation that develops that had already happened earlier. I'm going to go back. We'll talk about the fair-minded people first. Now you go back to, to the first part of this chapter. They're still traveling. It's the beginning of this journey. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. This town still exists, Thessalonica. You can still go, you can go there today, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So once again, they find this place that has a synagogue. They stop there. They go in. And the synagogues were set up so that when they met on the Sabbath day, at least on the Sabbath day, any man who was a Jew in that assembly was allowed to stand up and address the assembly. It's one reason that Jesus did this early in his ministry in the city of Capernaum where he grew up. When the time came, they, they went around, and if anybody had anything to say or scripture to read, they did that. And Jesus stood up and read and was thrown out, almost killed because of that. They tried to kill him. Here Paul takes this opportunity to speak. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now they would have understood from the scriptures that the Messiah, they could possibly see that he was going to be put to death and rise again on the third day. He could try to show them this in the prophecies that they were used to. He reasoned with them. It wasn't a diatribe. It wasn't, oh, but God believe me because I had a dream last night. He reasoned from the scriptures with them about this. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few, that's the Greek Jews, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So that's where Paul was staying, a man named Jason. 
But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, some of the brethren, to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason was harbored, has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, in the first, in this case, you have uh, Paul and and Barnabas preaching something that these that was uh, old, reasoning from the scriptures with them about what was old, and the Jews because they're envy, they, they weren't listening; they were only reacting emotionally out of envy because some of the people were converted. They began to actually tell lies about them, crying out, they've turned the world upside down. Now, that's like saying, oh, you can't listen to that guy because he's a radical. I've had people say that about me, which I took as a compliment. They didn't realize that. He's, Mike is radical. All that charge is supposed to do is inflame people's emotions. It doesn't explain whether this radical is telling the truth or not. Doesn't doesn't tell you whether he's correct or not. It just tells you in a position of of what we've already heard and what you've never heard. He's on that end. You've never heard this before, and and so he's a radical, and that's supposed to inflame your passions, inflame your emotions, not cause you to think about what's being said, but only to react to it. By the way, the reason I didn't get upset about that is because the word radical comes from the Greek from the Latin word which. My critics didn't even know what was on a coin that was Latin, much less no Latin. It means radis means the root. So that's why we have radishes, because they're roots. So I said, yes, if by radical you mean someone who's trying to go back to the root of Christianity and go back to the first century, I plead guilty. I'm a radical, and you should be a radical too. If you mean someone who's just trying to inflame people and preach some revolutionary doctrine so he can build himself up, no, I deny that radical charge. But radical is a term just used to inflame people. And that's what they said about these men. They turned the world upside down and, and they say there's somebody besides Caesar. They were just trying to play on their emotions in this case. And they were objecting to something because it was new or wasn't old. Now then you have... Uh, Acts 17, later in the chapter. Here he travels on some more, comes to the city of Athens. Therefore, reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there, and certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered. Now, you could take the time to look up the two different philosophies of Greek philosophies here, which are still well known today. You can almost put most philosophies people have in one of these two categories, even today, as time has gone on. These Epicurean and Greek Stoic philosophers encountered him, and, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? The word babbler here is, I think at King James it says seed picker, or something like that. It means that this man has not been trained in some classical, philosophical school. He's not Kantian or Jungian or Freudian. He's just a seed picker. He's went along and he's read, bought a bunch of books on Amazon. He's read this, he's read that, he's read this. And he's put it all together in his own little philosophy. He's a seed. And the idea was birds go and pick up this seed, pick up that seed, pick up that seed. And he's not really a professional about this. Boy, isn't that what we need is professionals to lead our society. 
experts to tell us all what to do, especially experts in philosophy. We need more of those people in control of our lives. Uh, This is Mike the Radical talking again. Anyway, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. This is a for, this person is saying something completely different about the gods than we've ever heard. We've never heard about gods like this, this Jesus. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill up on the top up there where he, and you'll read about his trip up the hill, seeing the idols. And may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This is somewhat like American society today. Everybody has to have something brand new to say. And what are the criticisms leveled against Christianity or a church like this is? Well, it's nothing new about that. It's the same old thing. And unless it's hip and new, we don't want anything to do with that. This is the way the Athenians were to some degree. Although in this case, they only wanted to hear what was new. And they'll say, well, you know, saying sex before marriage is wrong is kind of anachronistic and backward. What's the other? I'm missing the other word they always use. It's, uh, well, not retro. That's a positive word. When, if they like something from the past, it's retro. Uh, what is that other word? I don't know. I'll think of it at lunch. And... Uh, when I'm trying to sleep tonight, I'll think of that word. But in any event, uh, it's a criticism to say that something is old. We want something new and fresh, you see. I told someone, I mentioned before, Eileen gave me one of Tommy's ties to wear. And I said, I'm going to wear it today. I got cereal on. I tried to clean it up, Eileen, but I don't know. But it's been initiated. But the, prob- <laughs> the problem with this tie is very simple. It's too wide. It isn't really very stylish. And so I have a theory about I have a plan for that. I'm just going to wear it for a while and it'll be stylish again. Because I got other ties in my, on my rack. I have like a, I, th- I whittled out all my ties about 100 a couple years ago. And I got some that is little narrow things. I think their belts sometimes are so narrow. That's not stylish either anymore. But it used to be stylish, right? So you just have to wait for styles to change, and everything comes back around. Is this a good philosophy to live by? I don't care about anything unless it's new. I only want to hear things that are new and brand new and up to date. That's why I'm an, I'm an Instagram influencer, because I know what's really hot today. How about the other philosophy of the people the other part of this chapter? We never heard this before. This is terrible. He's a radical. We've never heard this before. I got this same thing while I was teaching in junior high school. Start, I'm studying, naturally, the history teacher always gets this stuff. So I'm going to study history. Mr. Schmidt, we can't learn this. I've never heard this before. That's one week. Next week, Mr. Schmidt, we can't, this is stupid. We already, we already know this. Okay. Anyway, which one is it? Old or new? You know, it doesn't matter how old or new something is to our ears. It really shouldn't matter to us. What matters is whether or not something is the truth that you can hold on to. Now, this is sensible. It's normal. There's nothing unusual in saying something like this. It isn't profound. You probably already kind of believe this idea, but it's forgotten so much 
in, in societies. We don't seek the old because it's old, nor should we seek the new just because it's new. Or at least if we do seek the new because it's new, we should have a good reason for that and keep it in its place, relative place about things. We seek the truth because it's what is right. It's what is correct. And then, and finding the truth about something is rewarding in itself just because it's true. And we ought to all be like this about learning everything and knowing what's new. And so there's great pleasure in going back over something that, that the Bible teaches that you already know because you know it's what's true. And when you do, it's like when Ezekiel ate the scroll that God gave him. It was sweet in his mouth. It wasn't anything new about it. It was sweet in his mouth because it was God's word. And it meant something and so forth. Now, let's talk in the time we have left. I'll try not to beat you to death this morning. About four or five characteristics of truth itself. These are somewhat overlapping, and most of them come from a colleague of mine, Doy Moyer. So if they're terrible, just remember that name. <laughs> if you don't like it. If they're really good, just remember that I was smart enough to find what Doy said and put it up here. Okay, that's how that works. Because you know how to play the game. Truth is rooted in reality. And I can say that because I know Doy would never listen to, to any of my sermons. Uh, Truth is rooted in reality. So in discussing morality, for example, as an example, what's true about morals, some atheists will argue that moral values are illusory, meaning they're really ephemeral, they don't really have anything substantive to them. So, you know, lying and fornication, stealing, all those things are illusory. They're just something that's developed for human society. They would say that morals have evolved merely to help us survive but they are not actual or objective. So it's not really wrong to lie or to steal. It just is useful to human society, and that's why these things were developed as moral customs. This view makes any discussion of truth as, as, as it relates to values meaningless. So you can't talk about truth in relation to any kind of values. And, you know, in our, in our system of things, there's another word that's changed. We used to talk about what was moral or right, Now we teach our children values clarification. We teach them about values. Values is a good word, but the way it's really being used in our education system today is values are something that each kid has to decide for themselves. Every generation is going to figure out what it is. It's really something that can change all the time. And and the question is, what do you value? What are your values? Well, you know, my values are only significant in as as much as they relate to the truth what is true and real and good and moral, then my values might have some meaning. But the idea of giving meaning or taking it seriously, what this person values and what that person values, uh, is really a pointless endeavor. But our education system has been trying to do this for a generation or two, is to help young people clarify their values. What do they mean by that? They mean get rid of notions, the notion of absolute morality that right and wrong exist. All that exists... The only true value our education system knows is what they think benefits the group. Community. And the group is all that matters. And how you get along in that and whether you'll do what you're told is the value. This is where we are. I hate to say that. But but unfortunately, that's the only where value has been clarified to, it seems to me. Because no one is allowed to stand up and say, that's wrong. 
That's, that value is not right. You can't say that. Now, uh, here's Michael Ruse, an atheist. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, it, that is ethics, right and wrong, is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they're referring above and beyond themselves. You know, it's nice to meet people so quaint that when they quote, love your neighbors yourself, that they think they're talking about something high up here when they say something like that. It's really quaint to meet these benighted people that in flyover country that think that. But really, they're wrong about this. Nevertheless, to a Darwinian evolutionist, it can be seen that such a reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and has no being beyond or without this. Morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process just as our other adaptations. It has no existence or being beyond this and any deeper meaning is illusory. Now these people run our society today. That's who is fundamentally behind what you're seeing. It's nice to be quaint and talk about right and wrong, but in the end, right and wrong changes. It changes by who's in power and what they want and what values society assigns anything at any particular time. There's no objective meaning. There's no such thing as right or wrong or the truth. Now, now this is the fundamental battle of our time, of our age, has been all of my lifetime. The, the, this has been gaining steam. And this is a fundamental problem with the truth. Uh, Richard Dawkins said the universe, and I think I put this up here some weeks ago about some other subject. The universe that we observe as an atheist, he says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. What we're seeing, he says, is a universe that looks like one in which all that exists is pitiless indifference. Poor Mr. Dawkins. He's face to face with his creator now, I think. I wonder if he's indifferent about this now. Indifference is a it's not indifference is not a scientific word, is he wants to come across to you. I've I'm such a scientific person. Not like these benighted religious people that have values and call things right or wrong. I'm so sophisticated and scientific that I'm going to talk about indifference. Pitiless indifference. Is pitiless an emotional word that has some kind of moral connotation? We we were in a debate years ago. I was in a debate, a moderator for an atheist at the University of um, Illinois. Excuse me. University. Let me get it right. Iowa State University. We're on the campus there in a big lecture hall and having a debate, me and other with an atheist. That he was a professor at this school, uh, some kind of a science professor, I think. And he, his argument against God, one of his arguments against God, he quote, he brought up the Ichnamon wasp. It's a, he showed a picture. It's a wasp that goes around and lays its eggs inside the bodies of other insects. And the eggs inside this body of the other insect hatch out and devour this creature from the inside. Devour, and that's how they're, 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 you know, there's probably, isn't this a science fiction movie? It already exists. And I could probably think of some politicians who are like that. But the point is, he tried to persuade the audience that there was no God 
based on the ichnamon wasmah. I told my buddy who was doing the talking, I said, ask him how he knows this is bad. Ask him why he thinks the ichnamon wasmah is horrible and a bad thing. See, he's using the ideal of what's good and right and just and fair. He's using these ideas, but he doesn't, he's trying to tell the audience these things don't even exist. I said, if there's no such thing as God, there's no such thing as good or evil, and ichnamon and wasps aren't horrible. Why are you using them for an illustration? They're not horrible at all. It's kind of cool, actually. But see, he wants to use the idea of truth to tell you that there is no truth in this case. Dawkins does the same thing continually in his writings, if you read his writings. He sounds very smart. He is smart. And I don't know that he was a bad, bad person, but he's terribly wrong and misled, misled here because he can't even be consistent in his arguments about atheism and about truth. But truth is rooted in reality. If, if, if evil is not real, then it cannot be true that evil is bad. If evil isn't real, evil cannot be bad. And yet one of the arguments against God is God does bad things. Who says he does bad things? You just told me you don't believe in evil. For then we're making a nonsensical statement that something does not exist, that something that does not exist is bad. The same holds for truth. If it's not real, then talking about it is pointless. Why teach kids about truth and telling the truth and all that if it doesn't even exist in the first place, you see? Truth, truth is, Jesus said, though, here's what he said. I am the way, what? The truth and the life. Truth is real. We may not know the truth, and I don't claim to know the truth at all times about everything at all. That's not the point. People mistake that, too. Well, you talk about truth as if you know everything. No, but I know there's truth. Whether I know it's the, another issue that we can debate, hopefully we have the right attitude, like those noble-minded people we read about in the first who keep seeking the truth. But no one can come to the Father except through me because I am the truth about everything, and all the world revolves around that truth. But truth is also objective. Doyle Moyer says, many today are fond of arguing that truth is subjective. Subjective meaning, I, uh, they'll say, well, what's your truth? Have you discovered your truth? And what's true for me may not be true for you. You ever heard that? It's everywhere. What's true for me is not true for you. It may not be true for you. This is what he means by subjective. Now, there are some things that that's, that that's right about, like whether you like cottage cheese or not. I think it's an objective truth. Cottage cheese is disgusting, but that's another matter. Postmodern philosophy sees truth as something we create in ourselves, not something that is objectively true. If truth is real, then it also must be objective. That is, it stands outside of ourselves and is true whether we know it or not, or whether we believe or accept it or not. Truth is true whether we accept it or know it or believe it. How we feel about the truth does not change anything. Truth is truth whether we like it or not. I think, that's a, I think those are true statements. You see. I think, and I believe, objectively true statements about the truth. Things are true whether I believe it or not. Of course, we see this every day. Some people drive as if they're not going to get hurt. but They drive as if the laws of gravity and force and momentum don't exist. Let's put it that way. What's Paul say? 
in Galatians 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so say I now again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we receive, let him be accursed. Paul says there is a truth. It's been revealed. Jude says it was revealed once for all through the scriptures, and that truth must be believed. And anything that contradicts that truth must be objected to, or at least understood to be wrong. This is an object. Truth existed outside of what the Galatians thought about it, didn't it? The very point Paul's making is truth exists outside of your notions of what it might, might or might not be. Even if an angel comes and tells you something different, truth exists whether an angel says it or not. And if the angel's wrong, he's wrong whether he's an angel or not. Because truth exists outside of him, even an angel. Paul, Paul points out, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews points out in Hebrews 5... For, that truth is discoverable. You can actually find the truth. I know this is a difficult thing for us because we think that since we haven't found all truth personally or as a society, the truth is not discoverable. The fact that truth is not discoverable by you, you can't even add 2 plus 2 and get 4 sometimes. The fact that mathematical truth isn't discoverable by you doesn't mean that mathematical truth doesn't exist. I have to use a calculator to do those things these days. Paul said, uh, I did it again. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the way of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Paul is saying, there it is again, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, who could be Paul, says here that you don't know all the truth because you're a child, spiritually speaking. And some of you should not be children. You should be grown up more mature, but you're not. And that's on you. But he says, just because you haven't known it doesn't mean it's not there. Some people, he says, if they work at it, can have their senses exercised to discern good and evil if they know the truth, if they come to know the truth. They don't get that way by believing truth is is subjective and it doesn't really exist or matter. They get that way by believing the word of God is the truth and they find out what it says over time. So truth is discoverable, you see. And then Luke says this, just in a general way about, about the writings of the Gospels. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set under order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word they delivered them to us. Paul, he's saying, look, I wasn't there when these things happened. But eyewitnesses came and told me and other people what they saw when Christ was alive. And so it seemed good to me, he says, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. So from the beginning, I began to trace all this out. To write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. You can't say, well, I don't know what happened because I wasn't personally there. And a modern, postmodern person would say, well, even if you were there, you wouldn't know what happened. Because there's no such thing as truth and you wouldn't know really what happened. The writer of the book of Luke and Acts says, Luke does, he says, no, I, went, I talked to the eyewitnesses 
and other people who were there, and they told me what happened. And I sat down and wrote all this out in order so you can understand what it is. And you can know what happened if you read what I write. Truth is discoverable. Truth is also attainable. Jesus said to those who believed him, and this is in John 8, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You can know the truth. And if you know the truth, you'll be set free. This is, we're going to come back to that. that that's an, I believe that this is such an important scripture, more and more as years go by. It's so simple. But it's so important. How much misery do we see? How much unhappiness? How much discouragement? How much inadequacy do we see in the people around us and the futility of our own society? Because people do not know the truth. And they're not free either. Oh, they talk about freedom, but they're not truly free. They're bound up. I read this morning on the radio show, I found this yesterday. There's a new church in San Diego. Did you hear about this? It's a new church. It's called like Faith Life Church or something. And the two quote-unquote pastors of the church are a porn star and her husband. She's not a former porn star. She is an active porn star and her husband. And they say this is basically the coolest church in town. We have the most fun. And it's a church... Of sinners, for sinners, and by sinners. I guess quoting Abraham Lincoln there in the Gettysburg Address. And uh, this is the church. Come and be with us. We're really cool. We are inclusive. There's another. And we have a community of people that are inclusive in this church. I have no problem with former porn stars being preachers and evangelists. Many of them are, and, they, and that's great. Paul says, when speaking about adultery and fornication, such were some of you, but you've been washed and clean. Fornicators and adulterers, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, will have no part in the kingdom of God. Now, that's the truth. But the point is here, that lady and her husband and the people who follow them are not following the truth. And I can predict to you that misery will be the only result in the long run. Much le- and even if they make it through this life not miserable, there's a judgment awaiting because they're violating the words of Jesus Christ because they do not know and believe the truth. Truth is subjective to them. Truth is immutable. In fact, we have what's called true truth. Uh, it's true that cottage cheese is disgusting, but, but that's not true truth, Okay. That's Mike's truth. But there is true truth. Now, distinguishing those two things sometimes takes effort, but it can be done. God said, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Oh, children of Jacob. This is a bigger passage in Malachi 3. He says, the only reason you haven't been destroyed yet is because I don't change. I extend mercy to those who I love. But I don't change. There is immutable true truth. That we should understand it and go for it. This is what this is what even the ancient Greek philosophers, you know about chronological snobbery. The ancient Greek philosophers on Mars Hill were seeking the truth. And you can read Plato as he talks about what's a chair and what's not a chair. You know, interesting dialogues and all that. But they were seeking the truth about these things. The people that painted the masterpieces in the Renaissance, these artists were seeking the truth in their sculpture and their art. They didn't find it. Because they were looking in the wrong place. But they were seeking what is true. You know, the Bible says about God in verse Hebrews 6, For men indeed swear by the greater, and oath for confirmation is for them, 
an end of all dispute. So you want to dispute it, you have somebody raise your hand and take an oath. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. So here are the two things. God has said, I'm going to save the told, told Eve, I'm going to save the world through the seed. And long we find that that's my son. And then he took an oath later. I swear that I will sit my holy one on my holy hill. So there's two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. We can lie. We're human beings. And we're made as having moral choice. But God's character is, is the truth. When Jesus says, I am the truth, and Jehovah says this over and over in the Old Testament, they're talking about, like, this is wood. I am the truth. We can know the truth. We can believe the truth. We can try to seek the truth. But we're not the truth. Uh, unless there's a rap star called the truth. I think there is. But uh, anyway, am I wrong about that, movie star? It's something new, so I have trouble. I struggle with that, of course. But God has given us his word that there, the truth is, what's really true does not change. Truth is also universal. Notice what God says here about the truth. For this is good and acceptable, and this is in 1 Timothy 2, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified to of in due time. So here is the universality of this truth, the fundamental truth in this case of God and the mediatorship of Jesus Christ, his son. This applies not to people who live in Christian countries and Christian societies. This is true truth for all men. God wants all men to be saved is true, cannot be changed, that is immutable. He desires them to be saved. He's provided a way for them to be saved in his son, and that is the only way that they can be saved. That's immutable truth. And Jesus and God expressed it right here, that it doesn't say, well, you get to choose your God, and if you don't want a God, you get to, and, and everybody has a right. You know, this is another saying that's been uh, percolates in my lifetime for 45 years. I've been trying to point out, and I'm not the only one, of course, that yes, you have a right to believe what you want, but that doesn't make you right when you believe it. Mixing up are the two words right. You have a right as an American, you can believe whatever you want. But we confuse that now in our modern, postmodern society of meaning, well, once you believe it, it makes you right because you believe it. Are you right just because you believe something? You could be. But, you, but it won't be just because you believe it. And it, another thing, another old thing I'm saying. You see, remember the bumper stickers that were out there in Christian churches passing them out? You know the bumper sticker I'm going to talk about. I've mentioned it a hundred times. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. It's all wrong. Not all wrong. A lot of it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Don't you believe in God? Don't you believe in God's word? Yeah, I do. But I don't believe it's that order. God said it. That settles it. I believe it's the correct order. When God said something, 
as truth. It's true. And it doesn't matter if any man believes it. Isn't that what Paul said? Let God be true and every man a liar. So whether you believe it or whether the world believes it or whether the majority, we take a poll, the majority, well, the majority believe this and the majority believe that. And so we're supposed to feel bad because the majority believes this way or that way. Don't feel bad about that. Just shrug your shoulders. If you know what God said about something, then that's fine. That settles it. See, this is a whole different mindset that is anachronistic and, and uh, radical, if you will, in today's society. Do you have that mindset? Now, this doesn't, recall, this doesn't cause you to be judgmental and hateful to people. Being hateful to people and judgmental is a whole other problem besides believing in truth. We want to equate the two. He believes in truth or she believes in truth, therefore uh, they're judgmental. No. That has nothing to do with it. And so the other thing we want to close with, I suppose, yeah, we're close. I'm looking at the count, slide count here. Truth is foundational. And by that I mean take this statement. There is no such thing as truth. I've heard this. There's no such thing as truth. So the question you ask is, hmm, I wonder if that's true. <laughs> you just told me there's no... Uh, everything. Uh, there's an exception to everything. Well, of course, except that. Of course, there's no exception to there's an exception to everything. You can always get language tied up. But to say that there is no truth, no such thing as truth, is an attempt to convince you that that's true. Now, atheists do this all the time. I've had plenty of debates with them and discussions with them. They do this all the time. Unbelievers do it all the time. They make statements that are self-contradictory if you look at them. Is it true that there's no such thing as truth? Well, obviously there is something called truth or you couldn't even ask the question. Make the statement. You believe it, you just don't want to accept what it means. The problem is we don't want to accept what it means that, yes, there is truth. What it means is I might be wrong and I might be accountable for being wrong someday to God. And I don't want that, so I'm going to start talking about there's no such thing as truth. And that's why people get rid of God. They get rid of God because they don't want to be held accountable for anything that they do or say. Even if they're living pretty good lives, for the most part. I have no reason to think that Richard Dawkins or... Or uh, who's the guy in the wheelchair? Stephen. I have no reason to think Christopher Hitchens and, and uh, the guy in the wheelchair. Hawking. I thought you. I'm picturing Dennis Hopper. I thought you said Hopper. I said, well, Dennis Hopper was no great shakes either. But even though I love Easy Rider, anyway, uh, I don't have any reason to think those were bad men, terribly immoral disgusting people. I have no reason to believe that. But I do know that even intellectuals like Aldous Huxley plainly said in his, in his atheistic writings that the reason I'm an atheist is so I can do whatever I want. I can put the quotes up here someday. I don't have it right here with handy, but I, I could find it if you want to take the time, and I know you don't. Let's close this out. You know, on, the nonsense of that statement is revealed by simply asking, is that true? If it's true, then it's false. And if false, it cannot be true. A worldview based on the no truth foundation is going to fail. You can't, you can't build a world on the idea that nothing is true. The people that go around preaching this to your children in school and in churches, they don't believe it either. They're trying to convince them that that's true. And they're trying to convince them a whole host of other immoral, ungodly things are true. And so I know they believe in truth. They just don't like your truth, as it were. Jesus said as we close, 
to those Jews who believe them in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth by being his disciple, and the truth will set you, will make you free. I love that verse. I need to be free. I need to be free from myself to some degree, free from my own selfish passions and desires that take me down the wrong road, free from my ignorance. And God can do that through the gospel and the other sins I commit. And I need Jesus Christ to set me free from those, not just make me think that I'm free, but actually set me free. And the gospel will do that. So this morning as we close, we're going to sing uh, the psalm that Gary selected. And I can't, 125, I believe, is the, is the number that Gary has selected. We're going to sing number, is that right? Yes, sir. 125 as an opportunity for you. If, if you need the prayers of this church as your brothers and sisters, that as a Christian you've sinned or you need, you're struggling with something, come forward. We'll, we'll pray with you about that. God can forgive. And you won't find judgment. You'll find uh, relief and comfort. And this morning, if you're not a Christian, we ask you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Wash away your sins. Come and accept him and come to know the truth. We can help you with that. Everything is ready. You come right to the front row. Let's stand and sing.